frustration is a great thing because that's what you have to get beyond if you want to get to the next level. So if you don't ever go there, if you stop right before you get frustrated, you never get to the next level. You have to go to those places of being frustrated as an artist. That was Heather Cornell, and this is the Lost in the Shuffle Tap Dance Podcast. My name is Hilary Marie. I am your host, and I'm here to support you with quick and easy access to new knowledge and fresh inspiration. Now, over the summer, I had the great joy, truly the great joy, of hanging out with Heather in July of this summer. Now, hanging out with Heather is always a good hang. And I had the chance to do an interview with her during her TAP Labs, the 29th annual celebration of her TAP Labs. And we talked about so much. This is truly a super wide ranging conversation. We discuss the origin, growth, and development of her TAP Labs, how she has given back to the tap dance community globally at large, but also how she uses tap dance as a tool to uplift her local community. We discuss the fear and the art of improvisation, how she gathers inspiration from her students, and we dive really, really deep, really deep, you guys, into the effect that tap festivals have had on the art of tap dance. So some quick bio info here. Heather Cornell is known for her deeply musical approach to the art form of tap dance. An intuitive musician known for her impeccable time and emotional phrasing, Heather's recent endeavors have been in creating music ensembles where she functions as the percussionist. Originally from Canada and now living in New York, Heather has traveled the world educating tap dancers and audiences at large. Known for her innovative collaborations on original music for tap dance, Heather was the only tap dancer chosen and mentored by the infamous bassist, Ray Brown. She is the artistic director and choreographer for the acclaimed Manhattan Tap, one of the busiest music and dance companies in the world in the 80s and 90s. And through this company, she became known as one of the movers and shakers of the tap dance renaissance and was credited for creating a style of choreography dubbed as visual music by the New York Times. Now, I recommend that you go to manhattantap.org to read more about her story, but only after you check out this beautiful interview that I'm so thankful to have had the privilege to do with Heather Cornell. So I'm hanging out here with Heather Cornell in Valley Cottage in the forest of New York. Watching trees fall. Watching trees fall. Mm -hmm. Kid you not, you guys, there was definitely a tree that cracked and came down. Gigantic That that thing was like about three stories high, at least. At least. Maybe four. Yeah. And, you know, these are the exciting events of the Tap Labs. (laughs) (laughs) This is why we go to the Tap Labs. Watch the trees fall in the forest. If a tree falls in the forest and no one's there, do you hear it? Only if tap dancers were there to see it, <laughs> then it's real. <laughs> so we're here celebrating um, 29 years of tap labs. And, you know, as somebody now, you know, I'm getting ready to celebrate 10 years of Jersey Tap Fest. The The number 29 is just bananas to me. So, well, how old are you, Hillary? <laughs> 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 that was silence. 
<laughs> my soul? How old do you think my soul is? <laughs> I am 28. Yeah, see, you missed the first year. I did. The tap labs are older than me. They are. They and are. I'm not, but the tap labs are. But the tap labs are. Exactly. <laughs> see? <laughs> so we're hanging here. We're celebrating. We just finished up day one. And... What I, you know, before we dive into what the tap labs are now, you know, what they are this week, what they are for the coming weeks, I really want to know what they've been. So can you tell us more about the first year? What did year one of tap yeah, labs so the look re- like? I remember having a conversation with Marika de Braal from Amsterdam. I think Barbara Duffy was at the table and Megan Hongs. And they were talking about how tap classes were getting so expensive. Mm. This is how much 29 years ago. They were probably like five bucks or something. You know, they were just so expensive. Nobody could afford them anymore. And so, and and that the classes were all too short and that there was no, like, that the classes were not, um, didn't incorporate musicians. And so I said, well, I've always wanted to, to, to teach with music and I'm going to put together uh, classes, uh, an intensive at the time. It was called the New York Manhattan Tap Intensive. I'm going to put together really affordable classes um, and it's going to be focused on music. And we were sitting in a restaurant, I remember this, and I'll do this this summer, I promise. And everybody said, okay, okay, let's see if we do it. And then I did it that summer and it was packed and it just has gone on from there. And at first, um, I just invited all my music musician friends to come and play, like just to hang out. And I, I was like, this is a really cool experience. There's a bunch of tap dancers from all over the world. Just come and hang out and play. And so for the first 10 years, musicians just came and hung out and played. So, you know, like one day there'd be a piano player there. The next day there'd be, you know, djembe and balafone and maybe a guitar player. And, you know, even the... Uh, the tech, technical uh, musical components of the music didn't even fit together sometimes, and that would be the thing that we'd be playing around with, the dissonance of that, you know. So for 10 years, it was just whoever showed up. And then people started coming because the musicians, because it was live music, and then I had to start paying them to come. Because <laughs> I had to be sure that, that a day didn't go by that there wasn't a musician there. So that, but for the first 10 years, it was just all the musicians in New York just would stop by because it was fun. To hang out. So the first 10 years were like a curated hang? Yeah, to, not even curated, just like I'd run into somebody on the street and say, hey, come by the, the labs or come by the intensive tonight. We're going to be at this studio. And they would or they wouldn't. I never knew who was going to walk in the door at any given moment. I could be halfway through the session and like five musicians would walk in and we would just incorporate them and keep moving forward. So... Were you the only tap teacher that you had? I've always been the only tap teacher. Okay. And then you brought in all your musician friends and, you know, it was more of a hang to start. And then it just became such a, a beautiful part of the program that everybody was so excited to have it that you were like, oh man, I got to make sure this continues. And so then you started incorporating it like purposefully by hiring musicians, bringing them in. Yeah. I remember one year, um, Toto from uh, Los Moniquitos de Matanzas mm. in Cuba. He was coming in to play for the workshop, or yeah, for the intensive at the time. And um, at the time, I was playing in a djembe performing group, and with uh, Madu was the the director, this African griot, 
and Andy Allgaier was in the same djembe performance group and we had just met and he was was just out of college and um, I had just sort of backed off Manhattan Tap a little bit and we were hanging out and I said to him you know Toto is coming from Los Moniquitos and he was like oh man can I come in and sit in and I said you can come and sit beside him the whole time if you want to you know because uh, Andy's a conga player too and so Andy booked like he said okay I'm, I'm coming to every session it, I think at the time it was two weeks and then I told all the other musicians percussionists in the room if you want to come and hang with Toto you know it's free just sit beside him play with him and so a bunch of them said yeah I'll be there I'll be there but so then it was like the night before and Toto didn't get his visa oh. and I got a phone call at midnight the night before the the intensive and this is when I had been booking people so I was like advertising who the musician was by then and I just remember going I'm screwed <laughs> you know so I called up Andy and I said were you gonna come tomorrow because you know I just sort of left it loose come sitting whenever you want to and he said yeah and I said um how much were you gonna come in the next two weeks he said I'm coming every day I said, excellent, you're on. He was like, what do you mean? And I said, you're the musician for the class. And he's like, well, I'm coming to play with Toto. And I said, no, Toto's stuck in Cuba. You're the musician for the class. So he ended up playing with me. And that was the first year that he played with me. And we've been playing together ever since. And now we have a band together and stuff. Toto never made it. He ended up in Vancouver, actually, <laughs> years later. Wow. A year later, he got to Vancouver. But the other people from that class were coming, but they were coming, you know, like, I'll come on Wednesday and I'll come on Friday. But Andy was the cat that said, Toto's in town. I'll be there every day. Mm. I'll be there every minute. I'll go for dinner with him. I'll sit beside him. And those are always the people that you want to work with. Anyways. Mm. So it works itself out. I love it. <laughs> it's funny how those things happen. Yeah. So where did you originally start it? Oh, the first time I started? Yeah, I, the first time. Oh, gosh. Sound dance, maybe. So it was in the city? Yeah. It was in the city until five years ago. Okay. And then yeah. it made its move. And it was all over. Here. It was at the Lincoln Center Y for a while. We were in residence at Columbia University. I was, I was doing trades at Columbia for three years. I would teach a... Um, a master's course in teaching styles based on the masters in their uh, dance teachers uh, master's program mm -hmm. and graduate program and then they would give me free studio space so I did that for three years we were in, um, up at Harlem School of the Arts for a couple of years Lincoln Center Y we were in residence the company was in residence there I think I think actually the first year we did it it was at sound dance but it was it's been everywhere. It's been at every studio in New York. It was at Faisal's one year. It's been everywhere. <laughs> that's cool. So why why move it here? Why bring it home? That was a really good. That's a really good question. Why bring it up here? Um, because first, I hate going into the city. I hear that. Number one, um, I want it. I have a great studio. Um, this community could use the vibe more than New York. I was starting to feel like, why am I doing this? The, the hippest thing that I do in the year, I take it into the city. Why don't I just keep it at home? So now there, you know, people are staying in different places around here. We go to the jam sessions in town, and we're enriching the, my community at the same time as, as you know, I'm bringing in international people to, to hopefully I'm enriching them with, you know, with the experience. So it kind of works on both sides. Instead of me running into the city all the time and just sort of you know, doing what I do on tour. This 
grounds it at home more. I love that you have this focus on supporting your local community and you're doing that in a bunch of other ways other than you know bringing these dancers out who are staying locally and things like that you're organizing jam sessions locally tell me more about it well I'm not really organizing jam sessions but I'm definitely frequenting jam sessions and I'm doing gigs up here now um, what I did do up here which is kind of I'm, I'm looking for the next generation of that is walk to the beat the festival that i started here and that was kind of the biggest um thing that i did for the community in terms of bringing arts to the community and and that was all about like um trying to demystify improvisation to the the real world (laughs) not just to dancers and musicians but to people in their lives to try and bring improvisation a comfort in improvisation into the lives of everybody you know because i feel like one of the things we're missing in society right now is is people are very afraid to improvise and and i think without improvisation you can't have a healthy society so walk to the beat was an effort to bring improvisation like the spirit and also the 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 process and the um uh, not technique but the the life behind improvisation to everybody in my community so we we had um it was a one-day festival it was percussive dance and music i brought we had four main stages and we brought in acts from all over the world for the main stages because you know i know a lot of people internationally and so it was easy to bring in a lot of really great acts um but but really the spirit and the heartbeat of the whole festival was the wandering musicians that was kind of my baby and I would hire, at first we just invited, but ultimately we hired 12 musicians a year. And their job, we'd give them a map. We had venues around the town, like that were restaurants and hairdressers and toy stores and bookstores and stuff. And, and they were all starred on the map. And the wandering musicians, their job was to, they had to go to every single star at some point in the day and go inside and play. And if there was another wandering musician there, then they had to play with them. Oh, cool. And so they, you know, they didn't know it could be anything or anybody. And if they met another wandering musician on the street going to the next place, they had to stop and play. So it was this sort of game all over Nyack of people like just having these moments of sitting and improvising. And we have some footage of like this accordion player and the guitar player, Tony Romano, who's teaching the fourth week this year with me. He's in Making Music Dance. He's like he likes to plan things, and I remember him saying at the beginning, "Well, where do we play, and when do we play, and do you have a schedule?" And I was like, "No, Tony, there's no schedule. You just go." And he's like, "But who do we play with?" And I said, "Whoever you run into." Why? <laughs> he was just like stymied by the whole thing. And then we had the best footage ever: is him and this accordion player who ran into each other outside of the bookshop and just plunked themselves down on the ground and started playing and had this huge crowd of people around them. And they, it was the most beautiful improvisation. And it's like the heart and soul of the promotional video for it, you know? So that was like the spirit of it. And we did it for three years. And then we just didn't get um, the foundation and, and um, uh, big sponsorship that we needed to take it to the next level. Because we needed to start paying our friends, basically, our international friends that were coming to perform. We needed to start paying them real real fees to come. And so we needed to kick it up a notch, and we just didn't get the support, so we stopped it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now I'm trying to sort of morph this into that. 
morph tap labs into... yeah into that because i feel like our community needs more experience um getting outside of their community the community the tap community so when you say the, our community you're talking our tap about community the tap yeah. community needs the experience of not just being surrounded by tap dancers exactly. but also yeah it's the tap dancers supporting tap dancers tap dancers performing for tap dancers yeah. tap dancers teaching tap dancers yeah. and we end up within this cycle and then we ask ourselves why what? are we the only ones? And why are we doing this? And why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, except for... Well, I mean, that's why I got out of modern dance. When I was a modern dancer in New York, I got tired of performing for modern dancers. Yeah. And that's why I became a tap dancer. Because I felt like we'd have a broader... We'd have more ability to get outside of ourselves and, and perform for you know the community. And it's starting to get a little insular now in the community. So that's one of the things that I think needs to be directed in TAP is to get, you know, teach people how to leave our community and go further out. Um, And then also to demystify TAP dancing a little bit and educate the larger community about who and what we are and that we're musicians. And, you know, every time that I play a gig, people are like, oh my gosh, I didn't know TAP could be music. I know, every time. Right? Right? I've never heard TAP dance played like a musical instrument. This makes so much sense. Where have you been all your life? Yeah. 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 So 30 years I've been out there, you know, screaming it from the top of the skyscraper and people are still stymied when they see that we're actually musicians. Well, I love the local focus, um, and this is something that's come up a lot more for me recently because it's, you know, it's always, you know, it's, how do I say, you start out with this, like, where can I go? Where can I travel? How big can it get? How many views am I going to get? What gigs am I going to get? How many festivals can I headline? And you go and you go and you go and you go, and, you know, to be honest, it's truly driven by ego and I can say that because that was mine that was my ego and then you kind of step back and say okay I've headlined these festivals I've traveled the world you know I'm traveling to all these countries you are always traveling the world you're always going around you've been doing this forever and then the thing that becomes so exciting is creating something so close to home, not internationally renowned, not internationally recognized, but this thing that's so close to home where you can see the effects and the positive, the positive effects that it has within a local community. Yeah. Yeah. Walk to Beat was, Walk to the Beat was really great. It was, it was really exciting to create that. And yeah, it had a very small reach in some ways, in some ways it has. But it's powerful. Very powerful. Um, I think, I mean, that's what art is, right? Is we are supposed to be morphing our communities through the spirit of what we do you know and if if we get spread too thin then you start to feel a little bit like your your effect is not as strong and you know like i have manhattan tap where we traveled all over the world and performed 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 for 20 years everywhere and um and that was a huge reach and and lots of ripples anthony likes to always talk about the ripple effect you know and uh he keeps saying, oh, like, it's so exciting to me, the ripple effect that Manhattan Tap must have had, you know, and it did. But then there's also, like, you come home and your kids don't even know that you're a tap dancer at a certain point. You know what I mean? Because you're well-known everywhere but home. And I think that's an issue that a lot of the artists in this area have because there's a lot of really good New York artists that live in this area, and all we do is, is work on tour. 
Mm-hmm. We make our money working on tour, and then we come home and we become mom and dad. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't want to have to kind of mix. It's kind of tiring to mix it to be to stay on when we're at home. But on the other hand, then the kids look at you and go, "You do what for a living?" You know, they don't really know the best parts. Like I just toured with my daughter for two and a half weeks in Europe this summer, and she's 18 now, and it was really exciting to the first time that she really saw who I am when I tour you know because she's toured with me when she was younger this is the first time she was an adult touring with me and she was like wow you know I knew this is what you did but I didn't really know this is who you are you know because I I I descend into these communities all over the world and I'm very comfortable in every one of them but each one of them is completely different and so my role in each one of them changes. And I think that was the thing that was the most interesting to her was how different, what a chameleon I am because I'm mentoring such different uh, communities. And, and when I tour, in order to create an eight-week tour, I have to choreograph and mentor and perform and, and teach. And, you know, like there's so many things and, and go to symposiums and speak and all these things that I have to do in order to cobble together um, a tour like that so just kind of watching her discover who I am and seeing that in her eyes it makes me realize that's why I have this need to to finally you know and some of my best friends have never seen me dance yeah right until I finally danced at Maureen's a couple a year ago or something which is what down not far from here yeah Nyack Nyack finally Nyack. has we finally have a jazz club yeah and it's a great jazz club David Budway put it together and it's really good, and they let us, they they hire, they don't let us. They're happy to hire us, but they he tries to keep a really good balance, which is what we did in Walk to the Beat too, a really healthy balance of of local professionals and bringing in people from New York and you know abroad and stuff. But he tries to keep the balance because there's so many incredible local musicians and dancers around here, performers. Especially being so close to New York City, so how does that feel, you know, to finally? have this jazz club that's so oh, close great. to home and to be able to go there and to be able to surround yourself and come together with these other artists who live so close to here but leave their artistic life on tour essentially so that they can come here and be you know be mom be dad take on that family role but now all of a sudden the truth has come to light there are artists in Nyack there are artists in in Valley Cottage and they're everywhere frankly i mean i think a lot of us didn't even know that we existed you know, a lot of us are just meeting now because we have a place to play. You know, so I, they're like Steve Richter. I played with him a bunch of times now. I had no idea he was here. He's a great musician. He's a great singer, incredible singer. And David brought us together because I heard him at the session and he started playing and, and, uh, and he heard me play and we started playing together. Same thing with Jim, Donica, the bass player I play with. We didn't know each other that we lived in the same community and all like many 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 musicians that I've heard at Maureen's and now we play together yeah it's good it's great that's cool so I want to circle back around to something that you had said earlier about this fear of improvisation but you weren't talking about just in the tap dance community you're talking about fear of improvisation like in life, in humanity, in culture. I'm assuming specifically in American culture. Yeah. 
Let's talk well, about Well, yeah, yes. In, in, I guess in European, I would say, too. I feel like they're more endemic. open. I don't know. Uh, it depends. It depends, it it depends on where you go, yeah. to. So I feel like, especially in American culture, like we have this... We have this situation when it comes to music, dance, you know, somebody says, oh, come dance. And they say, oh, you don't want to see me dance. I need a few drinks first. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, oh, come sing. And they're like, you don't want to hear me sing. It's like something happened and singing and dancing became something that's culturally looked at, you know, for the elite. And when I say the elite, it's for the people who are good at it. Like if you came into this world already knowing how to do it, you get you get to be the one that sings and dances. And somehow we've... You know, in our culture, we've become so afraid of this thing. And, you know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. You know, I, I think it's like, you know, okay. So if you go to Greece, everybody sings and dances in, the, in, their, um, in their gatherings, in their family gatherings. But that doesn't mean that a Greek dancer doesn't come to a tap class totally terrified to improvise and tap. So I, it doesn't totally line up with the culture and the freedom in the culture I do know and I can speak more about North America that the way that we're educating now the students in any environment um, has a lot to do with shutting down that unique individual voice and that there is a growing fear of your own voice it's all about compliance it's about you know can you take the direction can you do what's asked of you and if you stray with your individuality, sometimes that gets you in trouble. And it's, it's, it's a lot of work to educate people who are unique and free. It takes, it's a different kind of teacher that wants to have people express themselves. It's easier to teach if everyone is supposed to be the same and do the same thing. And, um, or it has, has become easier. I think the great teachers back in the 60s and 70s where people were really getting educated, were more inspired by by students who spoke their minds but it's shifted it's totally shifted now and i i notice even since i started teaching that that the improvisation thing there's i really think there's still more fear in, in improvisation and probably a little bit more than when we didn't know very much back in the 80s you know then we were just like ad lib improvise what's what's improvised oh ad lib what's ad lib improv what yeah make it up on the spot okay all right i want to try that yeah you know we didn't really know what we were doing but we just really were game to try that there wasn't all that much fear around it but now when I mention improvisation in the class immediately I get a bunch of people stepping backwards mm-hmm. and some people even they just try, shudder some people try and escape yeah I have to go to the bathroom they now know. they're gone <laughs> and then never to be seen from again and it's just to me it's an extremely sad state of affairs because what they're afraid of is their own voice mm. when you have a conversation like wait, now we're improvising I'm not reading from a script. And if I had to read from a script, I'd be very sad because I wouldn't be able to express myself. And it's the same thing in dance. If all I ever do is imitate other people's steps, I never get to express myself, and that would make me sad. And I find it sad that that's a a place of comfort now for many people, that they never have to express themselves in that way. In that way. Not saying that doing choreography is not expressing yourself. It certainly is, but... I always feel, and it's something that I always talk to my students about, that, you know, 
if you dodge improvisation or if you go to like go for improvisation but really it's just choreography that you're quickly like piecing together in your mind with a formula I'm always trying to tell them like you're cheating yourself you're cheating yourself out of such a beautiful experience to reach this higher plane this higher frequency where you just get to you get to vibrate and you get to be and exist and have that voice so you feel like it's it's a fear of that individual voice. It's a fear of that, and it's a lack of technique of listening, or a lack of mm. desire to listen. Tell me more about that. I got the best compliment, I think, probably of my career this year on tour in Europe when I was working with a singer and a bass player in Berlin, and we did the first set. And it, I love these people; they're incredible musicians. And we did the first set the way we had sort of planned it with a few variations and then when we came back at the break we said so we're going to do the second set like we planned and we went no (laughs) what do you want to do let's do anything okay let's you know let's just get rid of the set and we went back and we just free improvised with the tunes we hit the tunes but not when we were supposed to not how we were supposed to and we sort of sort of opened up the set and free improvised. So sometimes somebody was out in the audience listening and then they'd come back in and integrate and then somebody else would go out in the audience and listen. And we just like did anything we wanted. And it was, oh God, it was, it was music at such a high level, you know? And when we came back into the dressing room at the end, we were all super high. And the bass player said to me, oh my God, if I could play with any musician who listens the way you listen, I would be in heaven. You know, and to me, that's like the the um, a compliment of the highest order, because improvisation is just a willingness to listen and respond mm-hmm. honestly, and without this the fear of having to be brilliant or prove anything. And um, so, if I if if I hear from a musician that they felt like they were heard when I played with them, then then I feel like I did, I was there. I was present. I did my job. And I had fun, probably. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) So you had said something to me once that I found really fascinating, and you had mentioned that true mastery of an instrument is found within improvisation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Well, think about learning a language um, until you can actually speak. Then you don't really know a language. And the only way really to learn a language is to speak. Mm-hmm. And um, it's the same thing with improvisation. If you can't communicate, for example, I play cajon, but I tend not to improvise much on stage. I play balafon, I never improvise because I, don't, I have not mastered those instruments. And so I'm not in a place to, to be eloquent with, with my speech in, on those instruments. I can certainly hold a groove, I can uh, facilitate a foundation for Andy so he can improvise because he's a phenomenal improviser on balafon. But if I'm going to improvise in the band, I'm going to go get my shoes <laughs> and improvise because then I'm at the same mastery as the people I'm playing with. doesn't mean I can't touch the cajon on stage. I can certainly contribute, but I'm not going to improvise on it. Not when I'm sitting beside Andy, who has total mastery over you know, over percussion, that hand percussion. So I think um, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to improvise alone in the in the studio or in rehearsal for for that matter. You know, I'm just not going to take it on stage because what I take on stage is a sense of mastery. 
I like that you talk about what you take on stage as a sense of mastery because that's something I teach uh, I talk about a lot when I'm teaching an improv class because it's you know I go through this whole process where I try to negate the fears that people have they say oh well I'm afraid I'll run out of steps or I'm afraid that you know all eyes are on me and I'm gonna fall off the beat I'm afraid that I can't connect to the music whatever it is and we kind of go through it and say listen I got an exercise for that listen this fear is irrational all of you know, all of those different things that help to negate that fear. Um, and I forget how I was going to connect this. I'm talking about the irrational fears of it first. Help me out, Heather. Well, what I can say is... Um, my thought? I, I think I agree and disagree on some level because... Oh, mastery on stage. There you go. I'm sorry. What about it? I came back around. But one of the things that I tell them is, you know, like, you have to negate this fear, but I'm not telling you to go on stage and take a six-minute improvised solo, you know, at the student showcase on Friday. That's not what I'm telling you to do here. I'm giving you the tools that you need to go home and practice this. And I think that there's this misconception that people have where it's like, you either have, you know, you either have it or you don't. You, the gift of improv, the gift of ad lib, the gift of going for it, not realizing how much time, effort, and energy people put into honing that craft um, and gaining that. It's really striving towards that level of mastery of the art form itself so that they can have that confident voice, that powerful voice when it is presented on stage. Yeah, I mean, there's no disputing that you have to practice. Well, yes, there's... Because <laughs> if you practice, you have to practice until you get to that, that state of feeling like you've mastered something. Because if you don't practice, then that's a really good, uh, coherent reason for being terrified. <laughs> you know? That's legit. <laughs> if, you, if you're going to go on stage, if I'm going to go on stage and play the cajon the way that I play it today and take a 10-minute solo, I should be terrified. <laughs> because I'm not ready to do that. You know, but... but and how long have you been playing Cajon? Oh, uh, I don't know, years, a number of years. But I haven't focused on it as a solo instrument. Mm -hmm. That would be a whole other approach to, to, to practice. Mm -hmm. Like, I play Cajon for fun and to hold time and, and to, you know, play background, backup for, for stuff. Same as Bellaphone. I've never taken it seriously enough to, to develop it. Because that's not my first instrument. I'm, I'm, that's not why I play those instruments. I play those instruments to get better at what I do just you know tap and wood and sand I don't play those as my first to become that you know because everything I do is to feed my technique as a mu musician with my uh with my body you know but the thing about being afraid I actually tell people that um that I'm afraid all the time when I improvise. Like I remember walking on stage with Ray Brown and he was afraid before he walked on stage. And I said, are you nervous? And he said, yeah, the day I stop being nervous is the day I quit because it mm. means I don't care. So I do, th I, I think it's human nature to be afraid, but you're not afraid of improvising. You're afraid of the situation that you're about to walk into. And I think there's a huge distinction there because if you realize that the act of what you're about to do may not be what is terrifying you. It's the fear of failure in front of other people that may be terrifying you, you know? So if you can get to a point in, in your, where you practice enough that you can get walk, you know, move beyond that fear, you just have to keep getting yourself out there because once you start, like I may be terrified when I, when I worked down in, um, in Colombia, when, you know, 1500 seat house packed. With Julian? 
with Julian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've been there. And, and, you know, it was my show, and I had these musicians I had only played with for an hour. Yep. I was terrified, but... Um, me too. You have to be. <laughs> like, you'd be an idiot not to be terrified in that situation. But the minute I started playing, I wasn't terrified. Yeah. It all melts away. It goes away because you know you've done your, your, your work. You know you've done due diligence and that you're as good as you're going to be today. And you deserve to be on stage because you have something to say that's real and it feels good. You know, it, And you can hear the music and you can hear them and you can understand that that's a communication that you're able to, to enter into. And so it's not sort of you walk on stage, you're terrified, and then all kinds of horrible things happen because <laughs> they don't happen if you did your homework. And you know whether you did your homework or not. And also, I say to students, don't put yourself in situations that you should that you're not ready for. But don't be, don't stop yourself from trying, or for from reaching toward it yeah. and practicing yeah. and training for that day. You don't you have know? to be perfect to be ready. You just mm. have to be willing. You don't have to be perfect to be ready. You just have to be willing. Every time. <laughs> so, you were talking earlier about students um, inspiring the teacher what type of student inspires you what type of qualities do you find in the students that excite you the most of all the students you've worked with all around the world in all these different communities students that are willing to engage definitely who are who are willing to um, who are not passive who are willing to contribute to the room in a positive way meaning willing to ask questions, willing to tell me what they're, what they're working on, willing to be wrong and not letting that stop them. You know, just, just students that, that... I've seen students go from day one to on... Well, I did it, to on stage in a year. And then I've seen students... I, I, I started tap dancing again in, in 85 or 4... And I was working in four companies a year later. And the next year I was in Jazz Tap Ensemble. I got that one job. And it, it wasn't because I'm brilliant. It was because of the way I train myself and the way I, I study, the willingness. Student, the, the best students for me are, are students who are completely and utterly willing. They may question stuff, but they question it when it's not going to get in the way of the process in the room. Like it's really, really common and normal and healthy to question, but you have to question so that things keep moving forward for you and, and the teacher. Not questioning that stops you and makes you, makes you shut down. So students who are willing and students who are willing to let me know what they're working on and what they don't know and who want to contribute to the, to the process. So what type of advice do you have for the student that does shut down that they're not don't. willing. Well, don't. <laughs> but you know, there are these students who it's like they're not willing, but in their heart and they're like in their heart and soul, they're willing and they're ready. But that's not the forward energy that they put out. And you know, they walk away frustrated. They walk away. Frustration is a great thing, and mm-hmm. so is so is emotion. But if you let it stop the process, it's not good. How would it stop the process? It stops you from learning, from moving forward. You mm-hmm. get resistant. That's not a good thing. Frustration's a great thing because that's what you have to get beyond if you want to get to the next level. So if you don't ever go there, if you stop right before you get frustrated, you never get to the next level. 
You have to go to those places of being frustrated as an artist. But if you blame everybody else for your frustration, it's going to stop you dead in your tracks. What's an example of, you know, a time in, you know, all of your tap dance years that you found yourself in that moment where you were you were in your tracks and you're like, man, I am frustrated. I am stuck. I am pissed. I, and and you had this option to either shut it down or move forward. Can you give an example of that? And, you know, the inner dialogue that brought you to the other side of it? Mm, I don't know that I can do that. Um, I know I've wanted to quit a number of times and I just kind of ride it out. I just don't let myself get too invested in that kind of dialogue in my head because I, th- I go through that all the time. It's time to quit. I'm going to go work in Starbucks. Oh, <laughs> man. I do that all the time. Ooh. Wouldn't it be nice to be a manager of Trader Joe's? Because I, <laughs> I would go there. I'd enjoy the, the energy in the room, and I'd go home and not have to think about it all night long. I wouldn't be booking my next gig until 3 in the morning. Um, and I go through that all the time. It's a, it's kind of a stress release for me to consider that. To um, just imagine what the option is. Yeah, but I realistically, I really honestly consider a lot of options all the time. Like my daughter and I were starting a company importing beautiful things from Guatemala and selling them together. And we're still talking about developing that company because I think it would be a good thing for the community, a good thing for her, a good thing for me. And we're spreading beauty. That's kind of like the arts. It's kind of like what I'm doing already. It's just I would be doing it in a different way. So that would be, and so I'm considering that. That's not off the table. Um, And it would take away from my dancing, but that'd be cool. We'll see, you know, it'd be nice to do something else sometime in my life. Um, That's always an option is to to do something else. So I don't know. I, I don't think it has to be a negative to get frustrated and, and want to move to a new place. It could be a positive. Whether I do it or not is kind of uh, not really the point. The point is whether I feel the emotions and, and consider other things. And I do a lot, many, many times. I think about shifting gears. We only live once. I'm constantly thinking, hmm, I only live once. Do I really want to just be a tap dancer my whole life? It's a short amount of time when you think about it. Like if you mm-hmm. think a hundred years, I know it's if, very if you're short. lucky, and I mean we really were talking about thirty about it, years like, for the not, labs. Yeah, a right? hundred years and thirty percent of your life. Yeah, if, if you're lucky, it, if you're lucky, a third right. of it dedicated to producing and directing that annual event. It's a short period of time. Students, yeah, but that's why I'm trying to morph it so that it becomes more about the students understanding that there's that it's a two-way street because I've already I've already been educating you know how many generations is 30 years lots lots of generations lots of generations (laughs) I mean Adriel who was 13 when I met him Mm -hmm. was how old is he now 30 he's 30 that's 17 years ago more than half his life we've been connected artistically so that's a lot of years yeah um, to and be it's a part a, and of it's, so and, many people's lives, and it's a lot of waves. It's a lot of ripples. You know, Anthony talks about the ripple effect. There's a lot of ripples in those 30 years, and I feel like it's time for the students to start feeding each other. And make, I want to make sure that they're going to do that, that they're going to continue that when I when I do stop. They're going to continue to, you know, support each other and um, keep each other moving forward and stay musical and 
I, I kind of understand now why the guys taught the way they taught because they had almost lost the thing that they loved the most and they didn't choose to quit. They were forced to quit and they never thought it was going to come back again. And then lo and behold, at the end of their, or near the end of their lives, you know, the last, after two thirds of their life, the last third of their life, it arrived again and they got to start dancing again and, and be tap dancers again. And so they were teaching us understanding that they almost lost it. And so they were only giving us what was really necessary for us to continue and become the best artists that we could become. And I don't know that they thought about it a lot. I think it was just human nature. It was survival. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to make sure this next generation gets it, understands what the hell this is to us, because we don't want to see it disappear again. Like I said, I don't think it was conscious, but I think it was human to try and, and keep it moving forward. And I'm starting to feel more and more as I look around and see the way that tap dancing gets reduced a lot to steps and technique and, and almost a sport. Um, and I realize a way that I was taught it as an art form and um, with great respect for the music and great respect for space and time and groove and all that, I'm starting to feel even more responsible for making sure that a whole lot of people got it you know, what this, these, these intensives, these labs have been about, which is musicality. What do you think we can do to make sure that that doesn't happen again, that it doesn't go away, right? This art form was taken from, from these guys, not willingly. They didn't choose to step away from it. The gigs dried up. The opportunities were gone. Do you think that's something that could potentially happen again if we don't do X, Y, Z to continue that? Well, you know? if I had that answer, I would be brilliant. But <laughs> I do think it can happen again, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, things like Michelle Dorrance's company is bringing it back to the main stage again, which is great because it's been too long. Like, we had it really happening in the 80s and 90s, and it just kind of waned again, and that was kind of scary. Um I think Michelle's doing a lot. She's spawning a lot of people who are doing, you know, there's a lot of groups that are starting to form, and that's really great. We have to get it on stage. I think the most important thing is um, to get it on stage, to get it more mainstream in it, without morphing the art form to make sure that it, it's healthy on stage and that it becomes a household name again. So just keep producing work, 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 work. That's the best way. That's the one thing you can't take away from people. If they produce work, they produce work. What about, so we're talking about, you know, get it out there in the mainstream, get it out on the stage. What role do you think getting it into the local community, you know, and outside of the tap dance community and into the local, just simple human being community could do to contribute to that as well? Well, I mean, obviously it'd be lovely if tap were a household word again, which it was in the 30s and 40s. So that would be lovely if that would, were to happen again. It's got the power, which is why I've never understood why it hasn't happened again yet. Because every time you do a show, everybody's like, oh my God, that was amazing. They I love it. No, you know. It's and, so powerful. And other art forms don't get that. So it is powerful. And um, so I don't know, it's a, it's a little bit stymied, I think. or it's It stymies me a little bit to try and figure out why it hasn't taken off as as much as we gave it the blast in the 80s and 90s and it hasn't really it's sputtered 
again, um, what was the point of that question? What, what did you? What was? How did you frame that question? We're talking about, you know, the 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 guys had their art taken away from them. Is oh, how it, can how can we how can we prevent something like that from potentially happening in the it's future? Got to get back on stage. I mean, it's just that the the I think the the problem with the last fifteen years has been. <laughs> I hate to I hate to do this, but I think it's been the fact that the festivals became cookie cutters of themselves let's talk about it uh, because be, you know we're here at your tap labs which are completely different from yeah. the festival circuit i mean and i never I wanted a, a huge festival. change right in my festival you, because i did i did the before they were like super cookie cutter you know it was or you know what? that's not true there there was a format that you honored right if you started a tap festival even though there weren't that many there was a format it was we're gonna have master classes we're gonna have some local artists we're gonna bring in some international artists there's gonna be a panel discussion there's going to be a history talk there will be a student showcase we're gonna have a residency class you're all gonna perform in the show the faculty is going to perform in the show and then the day after the show we're gonna have breakfast and we're gonna do a panel discussion and hear everybody's life story and this was like it was the format and depending on what city you were in, you know, each festival had a different vibe because you were celebrating the local community, you know, and each local community was different. But now there are so many tap festivals that, you know, I found myself sitting with Jersey Tap Fest and saying, you know, this is this is a really well produced event, you know, and I felt like it upheld the artistry, it honored the the history, you know, the music, just every aspect of the dance, and yet I was just dying to change it. And so here we are, we're at you know, I have a different format coming up for um this year, and I'm here at your tap labs and they're so inspiring to me because I'm like man here is you know here's Heather who's been around for all of this you could have easily so easily just started a tap festival and done that format and yet here we are in the forest of Valley Cottage you know in your home studio where you have these passionate tap dancers from all over the world, truly an international mix of dancers of, of different levels and ages, and everybody is here. And I would assume it's because they're seeking a very specific experience that they're not necessarily finding at the festivals. Anybody want to talk about this? Oh, look, that. come on. You have to at least bear me out for the kinds of students that come to me who like to talk <laughs> look they're all sleeping all right let's well if let's we say where, video, where is everybody that from? they're all shout out where you're from seattle seattle wisconsin. france wisconsin new york, new york toronto montreal, montreal texas, texas. UK, June DC. Left. She was from Hong Kong. Hong Kong. We, you know. Is Viviana here? Huh? Chile. Chile. <laughs> These are dancers from, from literally every single different aspect of the globe who have crossed paths with you at some point, you know, in your... Or not. Or not, in your yeah. international tours or heard about the experience from other people who said, you know, this experience was, was really important to me and... And they're here. And these are, you know, this isn't a cheap trip, you know, for people to travel across the world and to come and take this flight and to be a part of these tap labs. And yet this is the intimate experience that people are seeking. And it's not necessarily solely the intimate experience. It's your experience that everybody is seeking. And 
that's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. And I know that just from, you know, from a personal point of view, you know, from myself, while I haven't attended the tap labs, the time that I worked with you learning, you know, your Manhattan tap piece, uh, tap tap, blew my mind, you know, uh, I've had I've had this beautiful joy of working with so many um, tap dancers, so many choreographers, being a part of so many companies, and it was doing this one piece of yours that just is like everything clicked for me, and I was like, oh man, so this is this is what I've been missing out on. I'm a tap festival baby. I grew up at these festivals and they're beautiful and I wouldn't be where I am without these festivals and I wouldn't have created one myself if I if I didn't think that they were so beautiful and they had something so amazing to contribute and yet I'm finding this you know this intimate experience that you're offering people to be so unique and so special well you know here's what I think about the festivals I think that a whole generation of dancers grew into the festivals like you said you're a festival baby um the original festival was probably jane's mm-hmm. by word of foot and that was jane's desire to teach that this is what's interesting about this the whole reason why she did that festival was because somebody said to her you cannot teach an improvised art form and she said yeah try me <laughs> and so she got all these guys out of retirement and 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 contacted every tap dancer she could find in the country of which there were, you could hold them in two hands and brought them all into a room together and brought Gregory Hines into the room and all these guys out of retirement and said, teach them. And they were able to teach. So she proved them wrong. So then the next festival, I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think the next festival was Colorado, Marta Kern. And that was because these guys had come out of retirement and we were trying to figure out the best way for people to get the benefit of studying with them. And so the first festivals were really about passing on the history. And these guys were teaching in whatever way they felt they taught, you know, which was all different. Like if you come to my labs, you know, if we ever do the the week of, of my mentors, every single day is completely different because I learned in a different way from each one. And then Portland was the next one, and that was Jan Corbett. And Portland, um, I remember my first time teaching there, I taught a composition class. I taught a class of working with live music. I, I never taught a technique class ever, or maybe a beginner technique class. But almost all of my classes were about musicality and creation. So there was kind of a format that happened at those first two festivals. Which and then soon after, uh, Lane started his and and I started my intensive, right? But the format was a, a little bit master classes and then a performance of the faculty. But that was because we were all wanting to see these guys perform as much as possible because they were nearing the end of their career and we they were so far advanced to us that we would just sit there in awe, going, "How do they do that?" And we just wanted to watch them over and over again, and. But then something happened where I think there was a misinterpretation of what the focus was behind the format. And then as the the teachers got younger, that format kind of got solidified and imitated because it was thought of as a convention. But it was never meant to be a convention. 
it, it, I can't use the word convention this way because I'm not talking about the convention. Well, yeah, convention you know has I mean? a different word. You exactly. Know, has a different that's meaning, what I'm competitions, and that's not what you're talking no, about. No, that's you're not talking, what I'm talking about, about like a very um, organized learning experience. Like it's it's an exchange. Where yeah. Like you're going to come. You're going to pay for classes. You're going to learn. This is what you're going to walk away with. This is your experience. Yeah. It's but transactional. We, it, I don't think it was ever meant that Colorado is this way and Portland is this way. Therefore, it's you know sort of respectful to set up a, a, a festival that way. I think it was really just they put their festivals together because they we all wanted to study with the mentors and the mentors were hard to get to because they were scattered and so they were brought together and we were able to access them and watch them and talk to them and listen to them talk because they they had years of experience that we wanted to listen to and then we went through this period where there were everybody so then imitated that format because they thought that that's what they should do to do a festival but really that became imitation of a format and the the reason behind the learning and the experience got lost in the format so then we ended up with younger teachers who were not that much there weren't that many generations between the teachers and the students anymore newer teachers who didn't have the life of experience that these guys had which is why we want to just sit and shut up and let them tell us everything you know because they were 40 years older than us and they'd been on stage for 50 years you know which is a different experience than when you're looking at a 30 year old teacher or 40 year old teacher who hasn't had that breadth that that life of experience and then it even got to the point where these festivals um became exactly the same with the same people happening in four different places like in Eastern Europe this happened for a while and within three years the, the producers were burnt out had no money and stopped producing because you can't maintain that there's only so many students so the festivals kind of became their own worst enemy and their own problem because there's too there were too many of them they were all the same they became this weird format that you almost had to do and I kept saying to every new producer don't do the cookie cutter festival figure out what your community needs and service your community and that will make a successful event and something that helps tap to move forward so for example uh, Alison Toffin in Toronto she's studied with me forever she's listened to me say this over and over so when she did the first Toronto festival she decided that they didn't need training they had been training each other because she had done this really cool thing where they, they self-trained each other and every week a different person would teach in the same group of people, you know. She decided what they needed was to get work on stage. And so she commissioned four local choreographers or four local dancers, Travis Knights, Diane Montgomery, um, I forget the other, oh, uh, Johnny Morin, and I forget the last one. But anyway, she commissioned four local Toronto choreographers tap dancers and um, had them gave them money to hire dancers and do a 20 minute piece and then or maybe even 30 minute or 40 minute and then she had them open to yeah 20 minutes because she had two of them open for two acts that she brought in and so she brought in making music dance my band and then she brought in Ted Levy to work with the Toronto big band so she connected musicians and dancers to Ted, she connected Ted Levy to the Toronto big band huge right because yeah. Ted Levy's phenomenal with Absolutely. big bands so she got the Toronto big band hip to that mm -hmm. she um, gave, she 
offered a residency to 20 young dancers and set a piece on them and then had them work with Ted Levy and they performed with the big band. So there was a performance element for the next generation. She nurtured four young choreographers or mid-career choreographers and gave them money to get work on stage at the best dance theater in Toronto. And she brought in two of her mentors and gave us work and let our bands be seen by you know by or our shows be seen by Toronto and to me that's a successful new event because she's looking at her community and she's figuring out what's going to move tap forward and what's going to move my community forward and she's not just doing okay now we're going to do this and this and this and because this is what I'm supposed to do and I feel like even though she didn't get it's harder to do that because you're, if you don't have the format in place, it's hard to convince the powers that be that it's valid, Yeah. right? But that's what Absolutely. art is about. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to be caving and doing what we're told. That's not an artist. We're supposed to be breaking the rules and telling people this is what's necessary and fighting for it, you know? So I, th I feel like if artists get more confident or at least more willing to fight for what they really need to say as artists and stick and and get get stronger in their own voices you know like that's that's allison's voice in toronto she's a producer she didn't know she was a producer when she was studying with me she turns out to be a great producer mm -hmm. while she's now trying to find a way to balance producing and and her her own dancing and her teaching if i, I feel like everybody has to be constantly trying to figure out who they are and what they need to say and how they can support their their communities so that the communities can support them back and keep it moving forward. Not just imitating what the last person did that was successful in trying to make it happen in their community so they can make money fast and move on. And that has seriously been what's been happening with a lot of the, the like you said, the proliferating festival circuit. There's just not enough tap dancers to pay that much money to, to support that many uh, model the, of the same you know that many versions of the same model and that's not really healthy for the scene also the setup of it is still teacher and if you're you can't see me but my hand is way up in the air <laughs> and student and my hand is way down in the air and and that's been the model it's been going like this I can tell you that when it was the separating, further separating, and further. separating further and further so that the, the students, I, I don't even know what it must feel like to go to one of those festivals and try and figure out how to make a career for yourself after you leave the festival. As a student? or As, as a, a student. As a student. And, and isn't that really what we're supposed to be teaching? Mm. It's, it's so different now compared to what it used to be because I know for me, it was, you know, when, when it was smaller, um, there were less events out there. You know, even though this format was pretty similar city to city to city, there, the gap between teacher and student wasn't as far. You right. would find yourself out at the diner right. late at night. Hanging out with had, the, Hanging yeah. super late with the yeah. masters, you know, right. having, having dinner. And that's when you would, you would shut up. And you would just listen to and the listen stories to and the amount yeah. of stuff that you could learn sitting at one dinner table. Mm -hmm. um, not to say it far surpassed what you learned in the studio. You know, you had your you had your time to learn your repertoire, your technique, your music. But then you had this aspect of history and culture that you didn't. No one sat down and said, "And now 
it will be our history session. But it was right, just, right. it was the stories, it was the hangs, and yeah. those existed. But, but you had to be willing to be in that hang. Yes, and that not was, not everybody was not everybody was not everybody was not everybody wanted to bother yeah. being in the hang. Yeah, you know, and the same thing. Not not everybody wanted to wade through some of the more difficult people to study with from the yeah. first generation. You know, I heard people walk out of Chuck Green's class and say, "He can't teach. I'm never going back there." Yeah. <laughs> and I just going, "It's Chuck Green. Are you crazy? <laughs> like, change your business if you can't figure that one yeah. out." Hey. But it's true. Not everybody's willing to put it out there to 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 get to the next place. And uh, um, and that and thank God for that, because not everybody's going to be the next great artist, right? Sure. But that's one of the ways you can weed through your students, I find. Mm-hmm. You can just tell the ones that are willing to to uh, to go the extra, mm-hmm. who are needing that information, who will sit and wait until the story is finished, who is, you know, like, yeah. you can tell. That was me. Yeah. I was the last one at every hang. Oh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> and I was the only one in Cookie's class a lot of the time when he was going through a rough time because... Yeah, was it was tough Mm -hmm. but that's part of it you have to give you have to it's it's a reciprocal relationship student teacher and here we are at 11 o'clock at night surrounded by said students sitting here waiting for you know hanging here and listening you know, yeah, after spending the whole day, sleeping here. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> after spending the entire day shuffling, and so you know, what's so beautiful, you know, and to round this out is, you created that experience. You, you know, you you're not sitting back and saying, "This is what I wish we had in the community. This is what I wish existed." You're saying, you know, I I want to see more of this, um, but if more of it won't exist, you can come to my tap labs because I, I'm offering this experience here for you. So for those people who want, you know, by the time people listen to this podcast, these tap labs will probably have passed. But if they want to celebrate 30 years with you next year, where should they go? Who, how can they contact you? How can they find more information? Oh, just my website, manhattantap.org. It's easy to remember. I, and you better know what Manhattan Tap was. If not, do some research. <laughs> oh, and the other thing is my oral history is coming out in, okay. yeah, hopefully in September, maybe October, but at least definitely by Christmas. It depends on how fast Lincoln Center moves. And um, that's really exciting to me because uh, they're doing a whole new group of 10 artists, 10 tap artists, and, and uh, trying to capture their oral history and so I was number one of that 10. We did, Anthony um, Morigerato did my interview. So that's going to be coming out um, too. So I kind of want to in, entwine that celebration about that because to me, um, I got to say this oral history is a huge validation for me at a time when there's a lot of history coming out that's not very validating because it's cut out a lot of Manhattan Tap. Um, but this, this, Lincoln Center, you know, approached me and I, I got to tell my whole story in eight hours. It's incredible. And Anthony invested so much time in um, pre-interviews with me, 30 hours of pre-interviews. And in really, he really encouraged me to um, organize my life. He actually organized it for me into four chapters. And um, so each two hour interview is is one of the chapters 
pre-Manhattan Tap, early Manhattan Tap, late Manhattan Tap, and um, post-Manhattan Tap, basically. And the pre-Manhattan Tap has to do with the companies I worked with, which were the companies that were happening in New York before Manhattan Tap and the orchestra started, which was Anita Feldman, Gail Conrad, Noel Parenti, uh, who am I missing, Andrea Levine, incredible groups that were here that hardly anybody talks about or knows about. So these oral histories are gonna be really important to all tap dancers. But yeah, so I would, I, I really am so um, grateful to Lincoln Center for doing these 10 oral histories. I think they're doing Lynn and, and Sarah, and Sarah just got done last week. Um, I think Steve Z interviewed her. And mm -hmm. uh, I forget, Fred Strickler is, is being done. I think he just recently got done. I'm very grateful to them because I feel like if you can listen to somebody's history from their own words, that's where you want to go. You don't want to have somebody mm -hmm. else paraphrasing somebody's history. And they, they gave me that opportunity to do that. So I, for me, this is a huge sort of um, milestone. I've done some really lovely interviews with Travis, you know, the tap love stuff, and, and um, with Anthony in the last while, little, in the last couple of years. But this is sort of embracing um, that it all happened, yeah. <laughs> which is a really nice thing after Absolutely. being cut out. Um, well, I'm glad, I'm glad that you bring that up. I was, you know, this has come up, um, just, it's come across my world so many times lately where people have been saying like, what can we do to codify tap dance? How can we get this on paper, get this written? There's so much debate about the history. You know, we gotta, we gotta get a book. We gotta have everybody agree to it. We have to have everybody sign off on it, you know, because there are people who fear that, you know, relying on oral tradition and oral history is insufficient. And my argument is, you know, so many people look at oral history as insufficient because it could be a game of telephone, but I look at it as the ultimate equalizer because it is. It is. you, person talking in their yeah. own words about their own life and therefore nothing <coughs> is left out nobody is cut out well things are left out but nothing is cut out well yes nothing is cut out whereas you know when you have to when you have to fit words into a book into mm. chapters into pages and you have to bind that things go on to the chopping block and then this is the paper that lasts and when people circle around this is the paper that becomes rule and mm -hmm. so much very is missing yeah and the, and the two books that came out are 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 very I'm very concerned about their effect on history the two most recent books um, what I love are the books that tell uh, somebody's own personal story like Jane Goldberg's book mm -hmm. uh, Lorraine Condos's book which tap dancers please get Lorraine Condos's book we did believe in spring it's called and it's the most beautiful love story Got about a copy her. on my bookshelf oh my god it's so gorgeous yeah. and it really cap captures Steve's career in a way that I didn't so many things I didn't know about Steve that came to me and that I found out about in that book but what's the strength of those two books and the strength of Rusty Frank's book too really I really like that one yeah tap, is that tap people? dancers and their uh and their stories or it's I forget the name of it's the, the, the turquoise name? one anybody yeah. know the name Rusty Frank's book I'll put a link to it in the show notes of this yeah. episode. For everyone who's listening, I'll put links to these books in, in the because show notes. Because she's letting people talk about their own lives in their own words. And that, to me, is the most effective history. So what? So if, if it contradicts, if I say something in my oral history and it contradicts something that I don't, somebody else says in theirs, well, big deal. <laughs> That's how I learned history. Cookie told one story. Buster told the same story completely differently. Mm -hmm. Chuck told the same story really differently, 
and Steve would tell a difference. You know, you you just that's history. That's true oral tradition, and and tap dancing is an oral tradition. It's not um, something that has been studied hardly at all. It's something that's been passed on from dancer to dancer to dancer and some musicians. And uh, so the best way to study it is to go to the horse's mouth and listen to what they say and then weed your way through through the uh, uh, inconsistencies to find some kind of truth. Hmm. And that's history. History is not clean. It's dirty. <laughs> Beautifully dirty. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, there you have it, ITAP Online Community. You guys can look forward to checking out Heather's oral history coming out in the fall this year of 2019, or you can celebrate 30 years of TAP Labs with her next year. Don't miss out on it, you guys. I've been enjoying the hang today and, you know, the the material that's being taught, the experience, um, the vibe, the energy, the environment is not something that you want to miss out. So truly look into it and find if you find yourself in valley cottage new york in 2020 you will be very pleased that is a promise (laughs) from me to you that was heather cornell and this is the lost in the shuffle tap dance podcast my name is hillary marie i am your host and i'm here to support you with quick and easy access to new knowledge and fresh inspiration now over the summer i had the great joy truly the great joy of hanging out with heather in july of this summer now hanging out with heather is always a good hang And I had the chance to do an interview with her during her TAP Labs, the 29th annual celebration of her TAP Labs. And we talked about so much. This is truly a super wide-ranging conversation. We discussed the origin, growth, and development of her TAP Labs, how she has given back to the tap dance community globally at large, but also how she uses tap dance as a tool to uplift her local community. We discuss the fear and the art of improvisation, how she gathers inspiration from her students, and we dive really, really deep, really deep, you guys, into the effect that tap festivals have had on the art of tap dance. So some quick bio info here. Heather Cornell is known for her deeply musical approach to the art form of tap dance. An intuitive musician known for her impeccable time and emotional phrasing, Heather's recent endeavors have been in creating music ensembles where she functions as the percussionist. Originally from Canada and now living in New York, Heather has traveled the world educating tap dancers and audiences at large. Known for her innovative collaborations on original music for tap dance, Heather was the only tap dancer chosen and mentored by the infamous bassist, Ray Brown. She is the artistic director and choreographer for the acclaimed Manhattan Tap, one of the busiest music and dance companies in the world in the 80s and 90s. And through this company, she became known as one of the movers and shakers of the tap dance renaissance and was credited for creating a style of choreography dubbed as visual music by the New York Times. Now, I recommend that you go to manhattantap.org to read more about her story, but only after you check out this beautiful interview that I am so thankful to have had the privilege to do with Heather Cornell. (music) 